Okay, 1 Kings chapter 11, following the life of King Solomon here. This guy just is going to do the trifecta at this point of disobeying God. Remember God's word in the law stated concerning the kings, that the kings of Israel were not to multiply gold. Well, he has done that in spades. You'll excuse all of the gambling uh, references. I was raised by two gamblers. I don't know if I try to blame it on them. But he, he, the kings were not to, to uh, multiply gold, and he had multiplied gold in Jerusalem until silver was counted as nothing, like dirt cloths, like stones. Um, they were told not to multiply chariots. In other words, he was, the king was not to model before the nation of Israel that the security of the nation was built upon their military, but it was to be modeled that the security of their nation was based upon their relationship and their following after God. He violated that. And then the third command that was given to the kings is they were not to multiply wives. And there's a goofy thing that happens, happened with kings, happens with powerful people even today, where somehow they feel that they're some kind of an extra special human being and that these limitations are placed on mere mortals, but they can multiply wives. And we're going to see that King Solomon just goes off the graph on this thing. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, and so he took uh, many wives uh, as uh, he loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh that he had taken as wife. He had taken uh, women to wife uh, of the Moabites, of the Ammonites, of the Edomites, and the Sidonians, and the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods, and Solomon clung to these in love. So Solomon had an eye for pretty exotic women. And uh, so this is, this is what he uh, was attracted to. And uh, God had uh, told the kings they were not to multiply wives, and he multiplies wives. And in verse 3 we get a sense of, of how uh, grievous his, um, uh, you know, disobedience was where we're told that he had 700 wives. How long does it take you to count to 700? And think about every one of those numbers being a wife. Not putting down wives would be just as bad as it was husbands. But, it, but this, is, this is, I mean, an unbelievable violation of God's commandments. And as if the 700 wives who were princesses, they were royalty from the surrounding nations. He also had 300 concubines, which were kind of a second class uh, wife that was usually married for sexual pleasure. Uh, he added to them, uh, uh, to himself, 300 concubines. And so for a grand total of a thousand wives and concubines. This is a willful deliberate, grievous disobedience of God's word. Not one time, not two times, not five times, not ten times, but a thousand times. And obviously he, uh, the whole situation that he's involved in, surely there is a, a sexual element to the whole thing, but uh, there's a whole big ego thing that's going on in his life at, at this point. 
He feels that he's gifted in a certain way. He knows what the Word of God says. He's been raised in the Word of God. And those are restrictions for regular kings. He's something special. And so rather than spending his life going uh, wonderfully and beautifully deep in a relationship with one woman, he just chooses to have a very superficial and probably uh, sexual and negligent relationship with a thousand women. You cannot love a thousand women in the way that you can love one wife. And so it's it's like, um, well, I won't go there because it maybe at a men's retreat, but not tonight. So here he is this, you know, superficial way that he looks at uh, looks at women and uh, chooses this superficial relationship with just with a thousand women rather than a, a deep, uh, rich relationship with one woman. So he's just out of control. Obviously, the word of God has ceased to uh, have any authority in his life at this particular point in time. And part of the whole deal was the reasons that kings in the ancient world um, married uh, multiple wives. Now, there were a lot of dimensions, but one of the dimensions was was as part of their ego. So it costs money in any time in, in history, but in the ancient world especially, uh, to have two wives, that costs a lot of money. To have three wives, that costs a lot of money. To have ten wives, that costs a lot of money. So when you had a king or a lord or some kind of a tribal leader or something, and he had multiple wives, it was an indication that this man is a man of great wealth to be able to supply. So what Solomon has done here is, I mean, in terms of all of human history, he just puts all of the kings in his age to shame. And basically it's just one more way of saying how many of you can... Uh, support a thousand wives, just kind of testifying to the greatness of his wealth and the greatness uh, of his kingdom. The problem with all of this is that as God had warned at the end of verse three, his wives turned away his heart. Every one of those wives brought their gods that they worshiped, their idols, their false gods into the marriage. That always happens in a marriage, whether you marry one person or you marry a thousand. Everybody brings their gods into that marriage. And that's why God declares to us as Christians that we are only to marry another Christian. So that our relationship with one another in the marriage relationship is not one of being tempted away from the worship of the God of the Bible in any way but that the husband and the wife would be a great encouragement to the other in their own personal relationship with the Lord. And so here he is, uh, he comes from a higher place than they do in his understanding of God and revelation from God, and they pull him down. It's a funny thing. It is a lot easier to pull someone down physically and spiritually than it is to pull someone up. All you have to do is just find a good sturdy table somewhere and maybe you 250 pounds, uh, six foot six and you're as buff as can be and put somebody down at the, at the base of that table and they'll readily pull you down off of that table. Half your size and they'll accomplish it. 
And it's a much harder task for you then to pull someone from below up to a higher place. And so it's the same thing that happens spiritually. A lot easier to be pulled down than to pull someone up. And then when you multiply it by a thousand, you just got a mess. And so the importance of marrying in the Lord so that we cannot be uh, turning our husband or our wife's heart away from the Lord, but encouraging one another in that relationship. And so it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. So he, at first they come in with their gods. He's holding strong with the Lord. The Lord gives and it looks like, hey, you know, Lord, you're, I know you tell me us kings were not supposed to marry uh, these foreign wives because of the gods that they worship and, and everything. There's no way I'm going to leave you. There's no way they're going to influence me and pull me away from from you. And uh, and there's no way I'd ever end up worshiping the silliness that they worship. You just give it enough time. And then here he is, ends up surprising himself, probably. And his wives, they did the very thing. This is the power of a wife in a a marriage related to the husband's position of tremendous influence in a healthy relationship. And so the wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of his father, David. And so um, here he is, God warned and he falls prey. You know, what does God know? And so for, for Solomon, he went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Ashtoreth was the goddess of sex. Uh, whose worship, uh, the worship of her involved uh, sexually immoral rites. And so he's already worshiping her, as far as I'm concerned, with a thousand wives and concubines. So he began to worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. And then he went after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so here is God. God's not even going to call Milcom a god. He's just going to call him an abomination. That's what, it, that's what they were. To God and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as his father David did. And so he begins to secretly now and um, begin to engage within the palace and around his wives into the worship of these these false gods. Well, Solomon, uh, then Solomon, verse seven, built a high place, kind of a shrine or a small temple for Chemosh. The abomination of Moab and the Chemosh was a very cruel, sexually immoral God in the ancient world. And Solomon takes this a step further and he built a high place, an altar or a small temple on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. That's the Mount of Olives. God used him to build the temple for the true and the living God on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives, it, you, there's nowhere you can stand on Mount Moriah and not see virtually every inch of the Mount of Olives with the naked eye. It's only separated by what, what's called the, the valley, the Kidron Valley. We would call it a ravine. It was in a great distance. And here... Within eyeshot of the temple of the true and the living God, 
He takes and he builds a shrine right in the face of God and God's people on the Mount of Olives. I mean, you just couldn't do anything more offensive to God. He's just out. He's just out of control. And it didn't stop there. He built one for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Molech, the worship of Molech in the ancient world, involved the sacrifice of children. They would take a newborn baby, heat up the image of Molech, which was like this with both arms out, heat it up until it was just absolutely red hot, and there would be an opening down at the base of the arms. They would roll the babies onto those arms, into that heated condition, and the babies would go right down into the fire. And he builds an altar to this God on the Mount of Olives, within the site of the temple, Mount Moriah. And so he built that for Molech. And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrifice to their gods. You talk about thumbing your nose at God after all that God had done for Solomon is how he repays him. I'll tell you, if you ever, and God forbid, if you ever found me, Later in life, in a place of this kind of apostasy or this kind of mistreatment of, of God, you, just, you could just walk right up to me and say, how in the world could you do that to God as good as he's been to you? That's not just true of Solomon. It's true of all of us. So the Lord confronts Solomon related to this. And so the Lord became angry with Solomon. Yes, of course, because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Remember, God had come to him two times, warned him, don't disobey my word. Be careful of idolatry. It's not like he was got sucker punched on this thing. God warned him specifically. You've got a weakness in your life here. Stay alert to this. And yet he didn't. And he had commanded him concerning this very thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded to him. And so had commanded him. So he's not sinning in ignorance here. Uh, God had spoken very personally to him uh, about all of this. And so these blessings of God that should have produced a great sense of gratitude and, and humility and obedience towards the Lord, uh, he and a desire to bless the Lord, he doesn't allow any of that to happen. And therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days during your reign for the sake of your father, David, not for your sake, but for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son who is to follow you. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom from you. I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David. Again, not for your sake and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So he warns him that because of what you've done here, there's no repentance. I'm going to tear this kingdom away from you. I'm going to take ten of the twelve tribes and I'm going to rip them out from under the control of your lineage. I'm going to put them under a different king. 
And then I'm going to leave the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin under the control of, of your son who is to follow you. Just two tribes. Now, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. And uh, the man's name was Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. So the Lord, the Lord is going to raise up some troublesome characters in Solomon's kingdom here in the hopes of bringing him to repentance, to shock him back to walking with the Lord. So he raised up an adversary named Hadad the Edomite, and he was a descendant of the king in Edom, so he's royalty. For it happened when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain there following a battle between Israel and the Edomites after he had killed every male in Edom, because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until they had cut down every male in Edom. So he has survived a, the execution of every male in Edom by Joab earlier in Israel's history. During the time of David's reign, he was forced to put down a series of attacks that came against him by the surrounding nations. Among them was Edom. And so they attacked Israel. And, uh, and while Israel was attacked, they had their hands full with battles that involved the Philistines, the Moabites, and the Syrians. And while they, they were fighting these three different nations on those fronts, the Edomites decided that they would jump in at this point of weakness and attack Israel. And God used David to then uh, win those victories over those other nations. And then what uh, Joab did is he was left behind following the defeat of the Edomites was to go through the land and kill every Edomite male. And the idea was to basically set them back 40 years for warfare. Uh, sometimes you'll hear about uh, nations that will have battle plans, mock plans for fighting another nation, and they'll have varying degrees of which, uh, to which they want to set back their adversary. And if you really want to set back an adversary and, and, and strike them decisively, you talk about setting them back 40 years. That's a generation. Take them a whole generation to reproduce enough men to put them on the battlefield again. And so basically that's what Israel did. They said, you did this to us, and we're going to make sure that you're not going to be a threat for us for a long time. Well, he escaped all of that. And he fled to Egypt, and he and certain Edomites of his father's servants uh, with him. And Hadad was a little uh, child, and so they began to flee uh, Edom with the boy. And they arose from Midian, and they came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran. And then they came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who then gave him a house. Wow. Apportioned food for him, and gave him land. So he really took to Hadad. Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him his, his wife, the sister of his own wife, that is the sister of Queen Tafnes. And so he marries him right into the family of, of Pharaoh. And then the sister of Tafnes bore him uh, uh, Jenubeth, his son, 
whom Taphnes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And so they're very, very close to the royal family. And uh, Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh, raised there. I mean, just really, really close to one another. So when Hadad heard in Egypt the news that David had rested with his fathers, he had died, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. And Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? And he said, nothing, but let me go anyway. He wants to go back home to Edom. And uh, uh, despite all of the hospitality of, uh, of Egypt and because of what had been done to his people, he holds a, a, a great, great grudge against uh, Israel. And so he wanted to go back and uh, it's uh, presumed that he probably put together kind of a, a guerrilla force that attacked Israel's trade routes uh, coming through the area of Edom. Uh, at Israel, kind of her south uh, east border as the trade routes would come uh, from the east. And so here he went back to his homeland to kind of menace uh, the, the nation of Israel in the way that he could. God raised up another adversary against him, Rezon, the son of uh, El Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah. And so he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah. And then he went to Damascus and he dwelt there and he reigned in Damascus and he was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused, and he abhorred, he hated Israel and reigned over Syria. So we know that David, when he was reigning, that he had conquered Damascus. So apparently even now, Solomon, because of his softness and his weakness, he's starting to lose some of the edges of the territory that was inflexibly Israel's at one time. And so this uh, uh, man rises up. Uh, with a group of men, takes over Damascus and then be, proceeds to attack again with small skirmishes, guerrilla warfare, harassing uh, movements against Israel to their north. And so it's, it's just a sign that Solomon's uh, losing control of, uh, of, of the territory and uh, that he doesn't have the grip that David had because of his own sin. And then Solomon's servant, a third adversary that the Lord raised up, the most significant of the three, was a man by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he was an Ephraimite from the tribe of Ephraim, from Zerada, whose mother's name was Zeroah, a widow who also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. So he was doing repair work in the city of Jerusalem. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, very, very brave. And Solomon, seeing that the man was industrious, so he was a hard worker, sharp guy, brave guy. You know, people are always on the lookout for this kind of a guy to promote him. And so this got uh, Solomon's notice and he made him an officer uh, within his uh, ranks and made him an officer over the labor force of the house of Joseph. So he promoted him. Now, it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, just minding his own business, 
that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. So they meet out in a field or somewhere in the open, just the two of them. And Ahijah, the prophet, had clothed himself with a new garment, a new outer robe. They would wear two robes in those days, an inner robe or an inner garment, and then an outer robe on top of it. And so he had clothed himself with a new garment. The two were alone in the field. Ahijah then took hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces. Now imagine, you're just getting off work, heading for home. You meet this prophet out here, start tearing his clothes apart. So those Old Testament prophets, they could be fun. And, uh, but there's a method to their madness here on that, sanctified madness. So he tore it into 12 pieces, and he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. So he apparently hands him 10 of the 12 pieces, and he said, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe, speaking of Judah, but uh, uh, Benjamin as well. For the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Wasn't unusual in the Old Testament when a prophet was going to say something very important to an individual or to a group of people that he would do something that would make your eyes pop a little bit, something dramatic. So you would realize, wow, he, he's got my full attention. And so there were sometimes these kind of props and all that would be used. And so that's why the tearing is to get uh, Jeroboam's attention and to make him realize that, hey, take this seriously. This is God's message to you. He's told now why it is that God is handing over 10 of the 12 tribes to him away from the lineage of Solomon. He said, because, that's a reason word, they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. And so the reason this is being turned over to you, Jeroboam, is because of the disobedience of Solomon and the idolatry of Solomon. Now, the interesting thing, and the reason I make mention of it here, is that Jeroboam is going to enter into disobedience and into idolatry on a level that even Solomon uh, hadn't, at least on the idolatry front. And so he is forewarned uh, that, listen, this is why Solomon's being judged idolatry and disobedience. So he's very clear on that. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. And so I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. And then it shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments, 
You can't, he just said it every way you can say it. As my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So he gives him a promise. All you got to do is just, God's just looking for a king that will obey him. All you got to do is just obey me, and I'm going to give you the kind of place in Israel's history that I promised to David. And so this was the promise that was given, and I will not afflict the descendants of David because of this. Uh, I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. And so the prophet comes in and says, listen, this is going to be given over to you. There'll be a division within the kingdom, but I haven't rejected the lineage of David in terms of uh, the kingly lineage related to Israel uh, forever. And, of course, that's significant, as, as lots of other prophets talk about it in the Old Testament, because Jesus would come through the lineage of David and not through the lineage of Jeroboam as the promised Messiah. So he comes in, makes the promise, but lets him know, hey, all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah, they hold that goes through David's lineage. Now Solomon, therefore, somehow he gets word that this message has been given to Jeroboam, now recognizes him as a threat. So he sought to kill him. But Jeroboam arose and he fled to Egypt to Shishak, the king of uh, Egypt. And he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And so Egypt seemed to be a place that you could uh, run off to. And, and apparently Solomon's reach didn't... Uh, uh, reach into there, and so it was a place of safety. Now, the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? So there's a book. There was a book out there called the book of the acts of Solomon. And you say, oh boy, why didn't God hold on to that and make it a part of Scripture? Because it wasn't inspired, number one. But we didn't need another book to read about how much Solomon and his household ate every day and how many things they made out of gold and what their silverware was like and how many kings came to hear their wisdom and walked away wild. We didn't need to know anything more about that to be able to understand the takeaway lesson as a child of God from the Word of God related to Solomon's life. All we need to learn what we need to learn from Solomon is recorded in the Scriptures. The wisest man in the world died a fool because he failed to apply the wisdom that he knew to his own life. He's one of the biggest failures in human history because he had so much knowledge of God in his noggin. He even had so much history with God as God used him to write so many Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. And he began to think of himself as spiritual on the basis of what he knew rather than on the basis of what he obeyed. And that's a great deception. 
that exists today. We must never consider ourselves to be spiritual to the degree of the knowledge that we have of God's Word. We are spiritual to the degree that we obey what we know and serve the Lord. I've known so many people through the years. They can out-debate me, I mean, concerning the Bible. And I know a little bit about the Bible. And I, they, can take any, they can take my position and their position, argue both of them, and somehow win. I mean, they know the Bible like you dream about knowing the Bible. And yet their life is a complete shambles. I mean, it's just a terrible thing to look at. And yet they think they are deeply spiritual on the basis of what they know or their heritage with God. And it's not true. And Solomon's life is a warning to us in, in this particular uh, area. The period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. So he probably died in his mid-50s. And Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. One of the saddest, saddest people to me in all of the Bible. Such a terrible, terrible waste. Think about it. God used him graciously to build that temple physically. And then with his disobedience and his idolatry and his introduction of idolatry to the very mount, Mount of Olives, he sowed the seeds for the destruction of that nation following him. Because it wouldn't be long before the people would begin to worship those same false gods. He did more damage than if he had never lived, despite the fact that he built that temple. But God is able to, you know, providentially and, and sovereignly, you know, make it all work for his glory and toward his his end. But we leave Solomon there. Very tragic uh, picture uh, in the Bible. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Rehoboam's the only son that's ever mentioned of Solomon in the Bible. So now we've got a Rehoboam and we've got a Jeroboam. Makes a lot of fun trying to figure out who we're talking about from here. So I was trying to work, work it this way. I don't think it may, might not work for you. But I think if Solomon begins with an S and Rehoboam begins with an R, and that's pretty close to S in the alphabet, so they're kind of united together. And then Jeroboam's just way off over here in the alphabet. So I know, all right, when we see Rehoboam, I'm talking about the son of Solomon there. Okay, of no help to you at all, but <laughs> chapter 12. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, right? Because they are. He went up to Shechem. And all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. And so he goes to Shechem. This is going to be his coronation service. 
where he expects that he's going to be anointed the next king of all the united tribes of Israel. And so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. So he hears that Solomon has died and that apparently the tribal leaders of of the northern tribes of Israel, they sent and they called for him to come and be a part of this service because they're going to make a request of, of Rehoboam. And so then at this whole coronation service, Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel, they came and they spoke to Rehoboam. And here was their request. They said, your father made our yoke, our burden heavy. And now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. And so here's Jeroboam. He's been hiding out in Egypt. God's given him a promise that he's going to rule over ten tribes. He doesn't press the issue. He's willing to allow God to just let things unfold and and have it happen in, in God's timing. So he doesn't come in and try and produce a revolution or anything. And so the people come. Jeroboam apparently speaks for the people there. And uh, Solomon, when he died, he left the kingdom good shape uh, outwardly. And yet inwardly in the hearts of the citizens, uh, they were really, really uh, frustrated, really, really resentful uh, over some issues that were festering in their heart. And so they felt that now that Solomon is dead and there's the ascension of this new king, it gave them an opportunity to address their their grievances and concerns to him. Solomon's uh, building programs and his wealth and all of the showiness of of all of these things, it, it, it did two things to the common man, to the men and women who were living in the private sector of that society. They weren't in government. Number one, it put a terrible, terrible tax burden on them. And number two, Solomon had raised up a, a forced uh, labor force uh, that was mandatory that he would just draft people into. And, and the numbers that were involved in that were just huge numbers. And so the people had been taxed. That's why when you travel around the world and you go and you see maybe the um, you see the Sphinx or you see the pyramids or you see some kind of Great Wall of China or something. It's always fascinating to see in terms of history and all of that. Always the edge kind of gets taken off from me. I'm not trying to ruin your vacation, but almost always those things were built on the backs of the poor people. They were just absolutely killed to build these monuments to somebody's ego. And so that's what was happening here, not related to the temple, but all the other building projects of Solomon and how excessive he had become. So the taxes were terrible. The forced labor was terrible. And they just requested two things that he would scale that back, scale back the forced labor force, give us some tax relief, give us lower taxes. And then they promised uh, to him there in verse four that if they would, he would grant that request that they they promised that they would serve Rehoboam. And behind the request is also the kind of implied threat that uh, they would revolt if their request wasn't taken seriously. And so this is a this is a big deal that happens here. And so 
Rehoboam said to them, depart from me for three days. Give me three days to think this thing through. Then come back. I'll give you your answer. And so the people departed. King Rehoboam then consulted first with the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said to them, how do you advise me to answer these people? I think we've got an attitude problem when he refers to the people as these people. (laughs) So he's already uh, seeing himself a little higher than he ought to see himself. So he goes to the older men. They had been advisors to his father and um, and they'd seen a little bit of life and and uh, had some wisdom and all. And so he asked the question, what do I say in response to this request? And they spoke to him saying, if you'll be a servant to these people today and you serve them and you answer them and you speak good words to them, I mean, don't be respectful of them and how you speak to them then they will be your servants forever. And so apparently these older men, even though they had reigned with Solomon and they had seen all this excess, they looked at the request of the people. And in in essence, they tell the king um, what they're asking for is not unreasonable. The labor force is is a terrible thing that's happening. The taxes are excessive. And, and so they believed that the people were were right in what they were asking for and that that the request should be taken seriously. If the load was lightened in, in both respects, they said they will become your servants and you'll have a very, uh, very nice reign. And so he they recommended humility on his part that he would just. Have the heart of a servant in dealing with these people. We talk about uh, public servants, don't we? And government employees and all. They're just encouraging him, be a servant to these people and, and, uh, and things will be okay. And it was very, very wise counsel. And of course, that counsel's right in line with the teaching of Jesus, who, who declared to us that if, uh, if any of us wants to be great, Certainly in the kingdom of God, but it works out in all areas where we're leading on something. Then we need to be a servant of all. And that servant leadership really goes a long way. And then Jesus went on to speak of his own example related to all of this. He said, for even the son of man himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this was just good servant leadership that they counseled him to take, and he should have uh, taken that counsel. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and apparently he knows what he wants to hear, and he's just going to keep asking until he hears it. So he knows where he can get what he wants to hear. So he consulted with the young men now, the, uh, uh, who were had grown up with him and who stood before him, and so these were his peers. Um, he's not we're not talking about an 18 year old young man here. He's 41 years old. He should be a lot smarter than than he is here. But he goes to his peers. Um, they've all got gov- I'm not putting down government jobs, by the way. A lot of this is going to sound very much like our current circumstance, but I'm not trying to make it that. But they've got. They've got very high positions in the in the government. They are very well separated from the hardship of the private sector and what the average citizen is going through. And and so there they don't. They, he goes to them. They don't know any more than he knows. They've, they've got they've all got the same life experience. 
And so he asks them the question, what it is that we should uh, do here, and uh, proposes that to them. What advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke of your father Uh, which your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father uh, made our yoke heavy, but you you make it uh, lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. See this little finger? Is this... uh, Is it... It, it, there's going to be, I got more strength in this little finger than my father had at the very core of his being. You think you saw strong in my dad? You haven't seen strong yet. I'm strong. This guy's a talker. He's not strong at all, but he can sure talk. So he comes in, he said, this is what you need to say to him. Give him this threat. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will uh, add to your yoke. You think you're taxed heavy now? You think you've seen slave labor? You haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to give you tax increases on the taxes that are crushing you currently. My father chastened you with whips. Now, whip was just a regular single leather uh, instrument. And he, uh, so my father chastened you with whips is the imagery, but I will chasten you with scorpions, as it is in the old King James, with scourges in the uh, new King James. And so what it's talking about is a whip that is a multi uh, uh, leather strap to it. And then at the end of it, they would put metal pieces that would be in the shape of a, of a scorpion so that it would add the additional sting when you would be hit by that, that particular uh, uh, whip. And so basically he's, he's being encouraged by the young men. You go back and you talk to them and you tell them, you think your taxes sting now? You think life stings now? It's only going to be like a, a one leather piece of leather whip compared to what I'm going to lay on you. So the whole thing is testosterone. The whole thing is just machoism. It's just nutty kind of these peers of his telling him, listen, what you got to do is if you want to continue to maintain the standard of living that Solomon, your father, had is you better put these people in their place. You better show them who's boss that might makes right. And, and you better knock them down. And, and put them in their place. And so this is what he was encouraged to do. And so Jeroboam, all the people, they don't know what's going to happen. They came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed, saying, come back to me the third day. And when the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him and spoke to them concerning Uh, According to the advice of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father uh, chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And so he lays this whole trip out there. And so the king did not listen to the people for the turn of events was from the Lord. He had told Ahijah it would be that way and Jeroboam that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So he not only 
disregards the request that they made. But he then just flat out disrespected them right to their face. Be careful who you make your counselors in life. It'll set the course of our life. Who we make our influencers. He made the wrong people his influencers. And he's going to pay a pretty price for it. Who's influencing you tonight? Whether you're young or old, just sit in the privacy of your own heart. Who and what is the single greatest influence for your decision making in your life right now? If it isn't God and godly people, then you are being set up for a gigantic fall. Now, we know later on in uh, the books of Chronicles that talk about uh, Rehoboam from a little different angle, that he had also uh, abandoned any kind of relationship with God and seeking God. So he doesn't have anything where he's going to God in prayer, that he's reading the Bible, that he cares about anything what God says. So God isn't his counselor. He rejects godly counsel and he puts himself under the influence of these kind of people. And you just see train wreck after train wreck after train wreck in life. You guys know it. You've lived a little bit of life like I have. You watch over and over again. Why did you make that person Give them that place of influence in your life. Why did you listen to what they had to say? Or worse yet, we said, why did I ever listen to them? Why did I ever make them my friend? Why did I ever take seriously what they had to say? And so tonight, as we just allow the word of God to wash our own lives, to check our own lives, who is influencing us in our decision making in life? And it needs to be God. And it needs to be godly people or we're going to make disastrous decisions. And so this is what he does. I think that the people, you, you need leaders in life. You need leaders in government. You need leaders in the body of Christ. It's not an unholy or a terrible thing. And I have found that people expect and want leaders to lead. That's not what they're asking leaders to not do. But what they do want is they want a leader to take seriously what they say to them and then for a leader to care about them. And then they get out of the way and they let you lead. And here is Jeroboam who isn't doing that. I think that Jeroboam and it's a and and I don't know where you, you know you have these. Um, Let's see how I would put this. Well, let's just put it this way. What what Rehoboam rather is doing here, any leader that thinks that he is smarter in every way than even One other person in the world is a very foolish leader. A leader who thinks he is smarter than all of the people he is leading is off the graph crazy. People are a lot smarter than they're given credit for, that we're given credit for. 
And so here he is. He's smarter than all of these people, all the requests that are being made, all of their perspectives. That leader has no future. And I'll tell you, especially in the body of Christ, that kind of leader will absolutely frustrate people and provoke them into rebellion. And I, I love the fact that when I, look, I have a position of leadership in the body of Christ, I don't put my ordination up on the wall in my office. I put it right outside the door so everyone has to see it before they enter in. I really don't. I'm not putting it down if you want to put that up in your, your room. But I, I have great respect for the insights and the wisdom of the body of Christ as a whole. And when someone brings, even one person brings something to me, I always say the same thing. I will take that to the Lord in prayer and see what he has to say on that. And I do it, even if I think it's crazy. Because I might be crazy and not be able to see what I need to see. If I get a cluster of two or three or four I'm on high alert as, as a leader. Something is happening here, and it's probably me that needs to learn something here in this situation. I'm missing something that some people that care about me are telling me now in clusters. And if a leader doesn't have that kind of respect, a mutual respect, for those that he or she leads in life and certainly in the body of Christ, then... We're going to set ourselves up for the kind of rebellion that he basically forces the people into. Now, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, didn't care about them, didn't care about what they had to say, the people answered the king, saying, What share do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. In other words, let's go home. Now see to your own house, uh, O David, speaking to uh, Rehoboam. And so here is uh, Rehoboam. He tries the power play. I'm going to kind of just bludgeon them with threats into, uh, you know, yielding to me. And what he doesn't realize is a king and as a leader, without the people, he's nobody. He's nothing. You can't rule without people that are willing to have you rule over them. And so it's just crazy. He forces them into this rebellion and they just make their uh, formal declaration of uh, secession from the union, so to speak, here. And so Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel uh, who dwelt in the cities of Judah. And then King Rehoboam sent a Doram. Now, this is just stupid getting stupider. By the verse, he sent a Doram who was in charge of the revenue. We're talking, he's going to send the IRS into the middle of this thing. He's going to send a tax collector. They asked for tax release, relief. He said, I'm not only not going to give you tax relief, I'm going to load taxes on you in a way that's going to make it sting like you can't believe. So the revolt occurs, and he's going to now try and bluff his way 
and, and try and stand behind a dumb decision. So he sends a, a Doram in charge of the revenue to go to the ten tribes now to collect taxes. Their response is, they just stoned them to death. They just killed them on the spot. And he died. And therefore, King Rehoboam, finally starting to figure out this is serious, he mounted his chariot in haste. And he fled then to Jerusalem. He got out of there. So just this dumb, macho, I'm going to do this kind of leadership rather than being a servant leader. And this just has been played down through um, secular history and through church history over and over and over again. And so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now, this is a very significant event in the history of Israel. Sometimes we get kind of new to the Bible and we hear the pastor uh, teaching and all, and he's talking about Judah and he's talking about Israel. I thought it, I thought it, the, the Jews were from Israel and he's got talking about Judah and Israel. And all. what happens at this point in time is that the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel splits in two. And the ten northern tribes now are going to become known as Israel. So when we read about Israel, it's talking about those northern ten tribes. The two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin are now going to be called Judah. So when they talk about Judah, it's talking about the southern half of the kingdom. Talk about Israel, talking about the northern uh, kingdom uh, of, of Israel. This division occurs here. Um, these, uh, Israel in this form of being a divided kingdom is going to hold on for about uh, uh, 200 years. And uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to go into uh, captivity because of their sin, ultimately to the Assyrians first. And then because there were some righteous kings that were part of the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, they were slower in getting into their idolatry and their sin. And they then went into captivity to the Babylonians because of their idolatry uh, some years following the northern kingdom. And so this great split occurs at this point in time, and it helps us to understand the reading of the rest of the history of, of the Old Testament, what's being referred to. Now, it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, that they sent for him and they called him to the congregation and they made him king over all Israel. And there was none who followed the house of David, only the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem after fleeing for his life, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors. And now he's going to go uh, to war and fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So now he's still going to keep, try to do this force thing and, uh, and try and force the reunification of the nation. But the word of the Lord came to uh, uh, Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. So God sends a, a prophet to deliver the message to avert 
a civil war. And therefore, they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. And so finally, he listens to some godly counsel here and averts a a civil war at that time. We'll stop there tonight because something entirely different happens uh, starting in verse 25 and uh, takes a little time to develop that and and then uh, follow it in in, into chapter 13 and beyond uh, the implications of it. So let's stand together tonight.